Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Anna Lisa Cox, a non-resident fellow at the Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. Dr. Cox is an award-winning historian on the history of racism and race relations in 19th century America. She talks about how free people of color were instrumental in settling the Northwest Territory long before the Civil War and the Underground Railroad. She also discusses her book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. Dr. Cox, uh, the book, The Bone and Sinew and the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. Uh, let, let's start off. I'm not sure many people out here know that there were black pioneers. Yeah, this is this is a long hidden history. In fact, when I started this project uh, at Harvard University's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research a number of years ago, the general assumption was that there were five, maybe six settlements that were home to really well-off African American pioneering farmers who owned property before the Civil War. Um, and by the time the exhibit I worked on at the Smithsonian's Museum of uh, National Museum of African American History and Culture opened in 2016, I'd found roughly 70 settlements. By the time my book went to press, I'd found over 330. So what that means is that at one point, the Northwest Territory states of Ohio, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin were more racially diverse than they are today. Not necessarily more equal, but more racially diverse. It, explain that. How, how do you mean that? Well, I guess what I mean by that statement is, uh, for example, I could take Michigan as an example. Um, Michigan in 1853, the state census record found that all but eight Michigan counties had African-American residents. This includes the UP, the Upper Peninsula, wow. right? Uh, today, that has pretty much almost been reversed. So something happened uh, since the Civil War in the Northwest Territory states. And that something is, is pretty devastating. But I was really intrigued about the role that these long free, often literate, legally savvy uh, pioneers of African descent 
the kind of ideals they were bringing to this frontier. Um, some of them had fought in the American Revolution as patriots. Some were children of American Revolutionary War uh, patriot soldiers. So they really kind of were bringing some of those best ideals of the Declaration of Independence with them to so, this frontier. So help us with the transition. Where did they come from? New England, all up and down the colonies uh, in on the East Coast? Were there centers of population that moved in its entirety, or was it uh, just a filtering? Well, as I mentioned in, in my book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, they came from all over, but also the population of free people was exploding. So our nation during the American Revolution and just after what I call the founding generation was really swept by this fervor for freedom and equality. And it wasn't a a perfect blossoming of uh, these rights, but it was definitely happening. There was something in the air. And so the, the 1790 federal census, I think it counted roughly 58,000 free people of color in this tiny new nation called the United States. Uh, you know, sort of, I think it was something like 30 or 40 years later, there were over 300,000. So there was, there was this explosion of freedom uh, you also had the ending of the importation of enslaved people, at least legally, in 1808, which was very significant. And then you had all of these moves towards equality. So not only did the Northwest Territory, as part of its founding document from 1787, state in a very subtle but powerful way that African Americans had the right to vote this is 1787, right? It's not right. 1987. It's right. 1787 that they had the right to vote in the entire Northwest Territory. And this is a big territory. This is before the Louisiana Purchase. I right. mean, this doubled the size of the United States. But also, by 1792, when George Washington was running for his second term in office, of the 15 states in existence, 11 of them had equal voting rights. That means that whites had actually worked to remove the word white from who could vote, thus opening up the vote. Though to it was still male and property owner, true, correct? True, true. You had okay. to be 21. You had to be native born. You had to be male. You had to own property. Uh, with the caveat, the very briefly, New Jersey opened up the vote to women. Uh, then after about six years, there was general freakage and that was reversed. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much revolution that the you know, revolutionary right. generation can handle. Sure. But. but the revolutionary spirit that you talk about that was around the founding of our country, soon after that, though, things started to become institutionalized mm -hmm. within the states. And so one who wanted that revolutionary freedom sought the frontier, did, did they not? I, am, I, am I stating that correctly or not? That's a – wow, that's, that's a complicated – I would say that the rights and the good land being offered in the Northwest Territory were certainly a draw to free African Americans who were coming from New York, Pennsylvania – um, North Carolina, Virginia, some of these families had been free since the 1600s. Uh, I even found a sizable movement of free and uh, very wealthy African Americans from Charleston, South Carolina coming out 
to the Wabash River Valley in the 1790s, helping to build forts there. And to be very clear here, and I go into more detail about this in my book, uh, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, frontier is not an uncomplicated term, right? Right. There were already people here. This was not a tabula rasa. This was an empty space. There were already indigenous people here who were supposed to be protected, uh, have their rights protected under the 1787 ordinance. Um, So this is a complicated and messy situation because for some of these African-descended pioneers, they are multiracial. I mean, I'm finding people coming out of New England who are Narragansett and you know, they might be Narragansett and Igbo and Scottish. They might be coming out of uh, South Carolina and be Irish and Ghanaian and um, partially indigenous from that region. And they're coming out to the frontier in conflict with indigenous people because the pioneering project was to own good land and farm it well. This is very, very different than the Afro-French people who had been in the Northwest Territory region for generations before there was a United States, who had traveled from the Mississippi River east into the frontier, around the Great Lakes. They're trading. They're marrying indigenous people. Um, They are multi – they know multiple languages. They speak English and French, and they're traveling vast expanses of area. That's a very, very different group of people than the people who are coming out, um, some of whom having you know, fought or their parents fought um, in the American Revolution. In fact, uh, Cornelius Lennox, the son of Cornelius Lennox, who fought at the Battle of Bunker Hill, was one of the very early African-Americans coming out to Michigan in 1809 um, to take – uh, sort of to help take over the Michigan territory. So there's there's different dynamics going on. This is a rich brew here. So did people come here and then purchase land? Had they purchased land prior to coming here and just hadn't settled it yet? How did the mechanics of it work? For many of these people, they came out to this region but then researched it because if you're going to be a farmer and a successful farmer, yeah, you need you to have the land, to, right. right? You need to know you're on good land. You need a good source of water. Uh, you need good soil. And uh, so they come out first and then they go to the federal land agent's office and they purchase the land. And in some cases I've found in Ohio, some of these uh, African-descended pioneers are right off the bat buying 700 acres of land from the federal government, 300 acres of land. These are massive. Um, One of my favorites is Enoch Harris, who was the first non-native settler of South Bloomfield Township in Morrow County. And he bought a quarter township. That's the way you did it in those days. Wow. (laughs) Yep. Yep. That's a chunk of land. That's a good chunk of land. So they came with resources, which goes against so many of the myths we have about the Midwest, right? So much says, oh, well, African-Americans were urban, but this group of people obviously were coming out before there were cities. The uh, African-Americans in the Midwest um, came on the Underground Railroad. They were uh, enslaved first. Some did, but the vast majority of people who make up, who made up the over 95 settlements in Ohio that were in existence before 1850 that were home to propertied African-descended farmers were free before they came. 
We talked about voting, but how culturally did the the races mix in the frontier? You know, I think that there was this hope, this ideal of, a, of equality, this, this idea, right, that um, all are born with an equal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And your hard work and toil right. gave you your bounty. Right. You... Exactly. Exactly. And so I have come across a number of stories, uh, including Enoch Harris's, where he's traveling out to the frontier with two younger white men, and um, some of his white neighbors help him build that first uh, log cabin in South Bloomfield Township. Um, in other examples, Right here uh, in Athens, Ohio, you know, you have a, a propertyed African American voting for his representation for his the man who's going to represent his interests at the first state convention in 1804. That's because he's propertyed; he has the right to do this. The difficult and painful part of this is that, in addition to all these people, black and white, who are coming out with these revolutionary ideals to settle this frontier. There were also those who believed in those older pre-revolutionary ideas of hierarchy, of white supremacy. Class, race. Exactly. Inequality. And who had you – know, racism is a 20th century term. But I like the way that James Otis and some of the early revolutionary patriots talked about it. They talked about the term prejudice. And they felt that prejudice was really poisonous to this weird experimental idea of a democratic republic. Because if you use something, and they actually use this term, um, it's like, like something as odd as hair follicles, right? The texture <laughs> of a person's hair to exclude them from citizenship, right? Right. Um, there's a, a wonderful speech by a Wisconsin, a white Wisconsin politician um, in the 1840s. And he said, what? You know, if we're going to use hair follicles, what's next? The Swedes? Like who else is going to be excluded? This is a, a lot of people felt that instituting prejudice into the body politic the legislations of a democratic republic was dangerous. And unfortunately, Ohio was early in opening up that Pandora's box of prejudice, right? They, the white leaders fought, argued, and then ultimately decided that the first state constitution for Ohio would, would reverse the Northwest Territorial Ordinance and put the word white into who could be a citizen. So disenfranchised. Basically stealing the right to vote from the very men who'd actually voted for them. Yeah. Um, amazing. What, what was the role of um, religion in all of this? And let, let me ask it, it maybe a little more particular way. Religion over centuries has been used to exclude mm. various populations and, you know, from the church, you know, uh, we are the chosen ones, they are not, uh, kind of mentality. Did that take place in the Northwest Territory or was it more egalitarian even from the religious point of view? It depends on what region you're talking about okay, um, and, and sort of what perspective you're taking. If you're looking from the perspective of African-descended pioneers coming out here, um, considering themselves, um, um, you know, American citizens and coming out here to sort of, yeah, to be pioneers, 
they and some of their white allies actually were founding some of the earliest churches in this region, in the Northwest Territory, which were racially integrated. So I'm thinking here of Mariah Creek Baptist Church, the first Baptist church in the Indiana Territory. And to be clear for your listeners, uh, when this church was founded around uh, 1807, the Indiana Territory was everything but Ohio, yeah, right? right. <laughs> you know, it was Indiana <laughs> sure. and Illinois and Michigan yeah, and Wisconsin. Right. Um, but they founded this church on the banks of the Wabash River, completely racially integrated with a mission statement saying that they rejected slavery and that no slaveholder would be able to take communion in their church, which was a pretty radical stance to take at that time because the only – I mean, the War of 1812 was about ready to break out, right? right? They, right. They're in a Fort Allison along the Wabash River with, uh, rightly so, indigenous people who do not want them there uh, because under the terms that George III gave them, that was supposed to be their land. Right. And uh, the only sort of quote-unquote civilized community was Vincennes filled with French enslavers. So they're basically rejecting that culture and bringing with them this idea of liberty and equality for all. So what was the catalyst for that spirit not to last? Hmm. What Was there a one turning point? Was it just evolutionary and, and death by a thousand cuts? <laughs> or how did that work? I, I go into a lot of detail about this in, in The Bone and Sinew of the Land. There was certainly a backlash. I mean, I think that a lot of people are becoming more aware of the period after the Civil War, um, Reconstruction, and the backlash against that. I would argue there was a very similar period after the American Revolution where real advancement was made. And then there was a backlash against that. In order to see that advancement, you can't just look at the founding fathers, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think it's really important we look at the founding citizens of America to understand this. Uh, because we weren't a monarchy. I mean, the founding fathers were important. But right. <laughs> they, they weren't our kings. Right. Um, so looking at the founding citizens, what they were doing on the ground, particularly in this region, is so important to understanding what's going on. And for some areas, and as I show in that map in the front of my book, there were regions of the Northwest Territory states where ideas about at least racial tolerance could take effect. But there was great damage being done to those ideals of equality on the state level, on um, the political level. Every single state carved out of the Northwest Territory, reversed the Northwest Territorial Ordinance, took away the right to vote from uh, free African Americans. And they were aware of this. So in this incredible move uh, by the early 1830s, uh, African-descended people are starting to create convention movements, sort of an opposition to constitutional conventions, right, which oh, they were excluded okay. from. Right. And they're making these powerful speeches, and they are publishing them widely, in which they are asking for a return to their rights, not to get them in the first place, but a return to them. They understood exactly what was taken from them. That they had them and now, yes. now they're gone. Right. And it's funny because we have a tendency to talk about abolitionists as radicals in the 1830s, but in many ways, they were kind of old-fashioned. In fact, Abraham Lincoln's first speech 
that he ever we ever know that he made right, right? 1830s um, in Illinois to that to the young men of the Lyceum he refers to this he refers to this growing backlash and the prejudice of violence arising against people of African descent um, in in the Midwest uh, in the North and he questions whether it's because those founding that those members of the founding generation of this nation were beginning to die off. Um, obviously, some of that founding generation who were white had white supremacy and pro-slavery ideals deep in their heart, Jefferson included. But some of them who came out here and helped to settle this region really were trying to live together under that auspices and ideas of equality. In the late 1800s and the early 1900s, family farms were passed down Mm. generation to generation to generation. Not so much anymore, obviously, but it was certainly prevalent in the Midwest for for that to happen. Did that happen with the uh, farms uh, settled by the African-Americans? Great question. Um, I'm actually currently being funded by the Library of Congress uh, Folk Life Center. This is the organization that creates folkways records and has all the Dust Bowl narratives and even some of the slave narratives um, recorded. And uh, they are funding me to do a project to travel around the old Northwest Territory states interviewing multi-generational African-descended farmers. I, I use the term African-descended. It's a little clunky, but because for many of these people, some of whom are farming land that's been in their family for over 200 years, they have been in this land for so long. Some of their families, they can trace back their residency here in the New World to well before the Revolutionary War. They have in their DNA, in their bones, in their body, almost every nation on this planet, right? So it's not really fair to give them any kind of terminology. It's just that the state or the territory, whatever, was deeming them people of color and thus taking away their rights. Um, So this is also a very complicated population, but uh, they were able to hang on to their land in the face of of, um, often outright violence against them because as for many of, of these pioneers, they were first on the land. Right. Um, and like Enoch Harris and many others I mentioned in my book. So then whites were moving in around them and then started to try to burn them out, you know, burn down their barns or pull down their fences. Um, I have a very difficult uh, and, and hard story about a, a pioneering family who, where 100 men actually marched on their farm with a cannon to try to kill them to get wow. this good land that they were on. Uh, and that was the 1850s. So these are difficult stories, but we have to remember that if we look away from this history, we also lose our heroes. Uh, we lose a lot of the truth and the facts about the founding of this region and who founded it and why. What was the role of the black farmer settler in education in Mm. the region? Yeah. You know, they were just pivotal on so many fronts, which uh, it's so much of the stories about who belongs where, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been hearing from 
um, some of these African-American farmers that, you know, these are people who have been on their land or in that region since before statehood, and they'll be walking down the street and somebody will say, you need to go back from where you came from, right? <laughs> oh, when when this person's ancestor may have arrived from, uh, I don't know, Sweden in, right. in the 1870s, right? So this is a lot about belonging, but educational rights were very, very dear to the hearts of a lot of these African-American pioneers because they understood that education and citizenship are intertwined, just as Education was noted in the 1787 Northwest Territorial Ordinance. Um, they they really wanted those rights. And unfortunately, Ohio was very early in taking those rights away. Some of the earliest um, land grant uh, legislations passed specifically say that this is for white people only. It's not for um, they actually say Negro or mulatto people at all. Um, so they are instantly excluding. So African-descended people are are making really wonderful moves to get back to those founding ideals of this nation. Um, the Clemens family in western Ohio, right on the Indiana border, by 1840, they owned about 700 acres of land, extremely wealthy uh, wheat farmers. Uh, they come out in the 1820s and really established themselves. And they and a few other wealthy African-American farmers and some neighboring whites uh, put their resources together and created the Union Literary Institute, which uh, in 1845 was opened. And it had as its founding charter that it would be open to all students. And this is a you know, elite pre-collegiate institute. Right. All students, regardless of the color of their skin or their gender. I have an entire chapter on this book Whoa. because this is <laughs> this is a school that Frederick Douglass is writing about in his newspaper. It's well known. Uh, they're, they're going up and down the East Coast, fundraising for it, all the way out to Nantucket. Um, and But something was available in this space from these wealthy farms and farmers where they could advance things like education, where those opportunities were not only shut down but being burned down on the East Coast. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Were there many integrated schools or were they segregated at the time? Now, I know rural schools are problematic anyway mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there were so few of them. Uh, well, the, the, original, the original sort of model was 
equal and integrated education. Right. right. Um, it had there was a lot of work put in um, everywhere from Ohio to Michigan uh, to create laws and legislations segregating public schools. Oftentimes, schools, public schools that were built with tax money paid by African-American farmers. Uh, you know, we can talk about, um, you know, it's it, taxation without representation is tough. Taxation without education must have been really hard right. uh, to see your tax money going for to a school that legally your children could not attend. And so this idea or this sort of older pre-revolutionary war idea that segregation in education should be the norm is unfortunately something that the Northwest Territory states um, and the white elites in those states are really pushing. Let's talk about the social aspect of, mm. of all of this. Um, these people had to be worth some money uh, at the at the time. I, a successful farmer with 700 acres, mm -hmm. uh, that person would be worth some money today. So yes. I'm sure back then they were worth some money. Was, was there a society uh, – Issue? How did that work? Was, I mean, I know rural life is isolated, but there are also are you know communities, right? So these are what we think of as sort of the elite of their community, right? They're church founders. Their money's going to build churches, to build schools, donate charities, <laughs> exactly. Um, they are hiring preachers and teachers. They're they're donating the land for the local graveyard. They're doing all those things that sort of the wealthy landed elite of a community would do. Um, they're also building mansions. And I'll be talking uh, about that later on tonight at this conference. Uh, but I talk about it quite and write about it quite a bit in my book. It messes with our ideas about race and race relations in the Midwest because there's a strong trope that African-Americans arrived um, illiterate, destitute, needing a hand up and a handout from whites who were there already. But what if the truth of the matter was that African-Americans arrived early, were hugely successful, and actually were helping a lot of white farmers that came later, and not only that, but were building beautiful homes and mansions, beautiful churches. Um, in fact, the Clemens home, beautiful brick mansion, limestone, uh, gracious parlors, hand-plastered walls, there, there are so many homes like this that we may not even know were built by African Americans or that have been allowed to crumble. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the beautiful farmhouse that John Langston lived in in Brownhelm Township in Ohio was allowed to crumble. And, you know, he was the first African American to be elected to political office in Ohio and possibly in the United States, 1855. It sort of turns everything on its head, doesn't it? All the history that we were taught back in in school that was edited and and, and perhaps not thoroughly researched. Well, and I heard the other day that that Ohio doesn't even require history in, in no, most doesn't. of most of its public uh, education. And you know, I, I sometimes teach college students. I had a college student say to me the other day, "Well, why should I care about a bunch of dead people?" Right. Oh my. But but. Oh my. <laughs> yes. Well, that hurt my historian's heart, of course. But it's more than that, because how we think of ourselves as a community, as a region, as a state, or even as a nation, 
is bound up in how we think of our past. So if a massive aspect of our region's past has been suppressed and denied, then it makes it so much easier for somebody to come up to somebody else and say, go back to where you came from, right? It, this, is, this is about who is thought to belong where. Well, as you're saying that, I, I'm thinking that, uh, you know, the, the myth that most of the African-American population in, in these states of the Northwest Territory uh, came through the Underground Railroad it is still a superiority kind of thinking mm, that yeah. we had to help them from slavery and and their beholding right. to us for our graciousness <laughs> as opposed to wow they were here building <laughs> this right. and and we turned them out you know that's that's a whole different look at yourself well and not only that uh, but many of the most successful Underground Railroad operatives were actually these African-American pioneers. And that's an aspect of this history that we're only just beginning to uncover because it does, I think it makes some people uncomfortable to uncover it, right? But it's they had to be so much more secretive than white people because they had much fewer protections under the law. Um, but there were absolutely so many successful African-descended uh, Underground Railroad operatives who were helping to get hundreds of people out. I just uh, did some very, very hard work last summer working on a couple of sites in southwestern Indiana, uh, one of which was where African-American pioneering farmers were doing this kind of work. And it, they've just been accepted as new sites on for the National Park Service Underground Railroad Network to Freedom. And uh, I'm really nice. pleased to see that happen. Nice. But there's a lot more work that needs to happen like that. What about the role of women, uh, of these settlers that we know little about? Were they similar to the roles of white women? Were they uh, different? Did they interact with the family differently? Were hmm. they given different status? Hmm. That's a great question, and I'm not quite sure how to answer it. I certainly focus a lot on African-descended women pioneers, and some of them did have very different roles. I spend a lot of time in the bone and sinew of the land talking about what I call freedom entrepreneurs. So these are people who, while enslaved, sometimes illegally enslaved in the Northwest Territory, worked to raise money to purchase themselves. And I have come across a number of women who did this, who earned the money to not only purchase themselves, but their children. And I don't know, I, I'm a big fan of um, Marvel comics and, and you know all the superhero <laughs> sure. stories, but I tell you, Coming across the free papers in southern Illinois, just outside of um, the salt mines of southern Illinois, which were kind of hell on earth, right. and seeing free paper, papers of a, of a woman who in 1814 went with cash in hand to purchase herself and her daughter. It's enough to make you weep. Wow. And, and how, how was the money earned? You know what? 
there's a lot more research that needs to be done. (laughs) There's a lot more. I mean, that's one of my things I feel bad about as I was writing this book is that, you know, there's over 330 of these settlements I found so far. Every one of them is worthy of a book. I would argue that many of the the settlers uh, of these families is worthy of a book. The problem is, is that for many historians, they didn't think there was a there there. Right. 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 So this is just the tip of the iceberg. But I think this is such an exciting thing to think about, that there is this entire past, a truth of an entire past that is so much more complex, so much more full of heroic efforts than we could have ever imagined. And I just hope that um, people will feel inspired by what they read in the bone and sinew of the land and that they will go out and start digging. Because let me tell you, I don't think I found a single county anywhere in the Northwest Territory states that did not at some point before the Civil War, this is before 1860, have African-descended pioneers that weren't either trying to live there or lived there and were forced to leave or still have Uh, African-Americans there today. So this is an entire aspect of this region's past that deserves more attention and can really help move us as, you know, states and a region forward into, I I think, a better community. How did you start this journey? I mean, I, I would like to hear a little bit about you. You're obviously an incredible researcher and, and writer and, and scholar. You. But what got you started? What was the seed? What was the spark? Well, as I've said before, I did not think – when I started off writing The Bone and Sinew of the Land, I did not think I was going to be writing the book that it ended up being. Okay, you started with a whole different idea. Well, you know, as I said before, the general yeah, assumption is right. that we're five, maybe six. Yeah, right. Uh, by the end of, of um, sort of my first semester as a, as a fellow at the Hutchins Center, at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African American Research, I'd found 30, and everybody was stunned. I was stunned. I was delighted, right? Um, 330? Nobody could have even, like, people just didn't even think that, that was a possibility for those five states. So it was a matter of trying to keep my mind open. Um, And I'll be very clear here. I could not have told this history. I could not have found this history without getting to know many of the descendants of these families. They knew the truth. They have been trying to tell it for generations. But a lot of white historians have been refusing to listen to them. And I kind of wish I weren't needed. <laughs> I <laughs> right. wish I wish this kind of history had been written about and talked about and openly discussed, you know, 150 years ago, 100 years ago. Um, but because we're not there, I'm glad that I was able with with help and assistance from so many others to get begin to get this story out. But it's going to require probably, I don't know, a hundred historians, a hundred years to even begin to unpack what we don't know about this region. Dr. Cox, it, it's an honor to talk to, I'm going to call you a revolutionary historian. I will take that term. <laughs> I will take that term with pride. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
Today, we've been talking with historian Dr. Annalisa Cox about black pioneers who settled the Northwest Territory long before the Civil War. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Blueberry, or NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Thank you.